You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. PDA Lions forever! It's not the cry of the owl or the calls of the foxes that awakens you. It is the forest that calls to you. The forest is on fire. The sky is red-tinged and the air thick and heavy with acrid smoke. You rise from the comfort of your bed and reach for your bow and quiver. You have seen many fires before. Usually this deep in the woods, they are started by Zeus's angry, errant lightning bolts. But sometimes, sometimes they are started by men. Men with bows and spears and swords. You do not fear men. You do not fear animals or the wild spaces. But you will not permit anyone to burn your home. You push your long hair out of your eyes as you creep towards the mouth of your cave. You cock your head to the side and listen. The forest tells you there are intruders in your grove. You find a tree near your cave and climb it. Your bow and arrows slung across your back. You are sure-footed and silent, even in the dim light of the half-moon. You find a perch and wait. You have done this many times before, and the key to a successful hunt is patience. It is the sound of hooves that inform you of the prey you are facing, centaurs. You would know the clack-clack crunch of those hooves anywhere. There have been rumors of a herd nearby. You've seen the signs, heard the stories that the forest has had to tell you. Animals avoiding certain areas, cold campfires, and always the impression of their hooves. Centaurs. Your mind runs through scenarios. The most effective way to incapacitate and kill your prey. Centaurs are without reason. They are stronger than bears. They are fiercer than lions. And they have all the danger of men with their clawing hands and insatiable appetites. Your goddess has long warned you about these creatures. Her huntresses have taught you well that when it comes to centaurs, it is always best to kill quickly and cleanly, because they will not give you any mercy if they catch you. The fire is encroaching. You can see its bright line marching down the slope at the other side of the valley, driving animals ahead of it. Your ears follow the echoes of their hooves. The sound reverberates in strange ways in your grove, but you have learned how to tell the difference from a nearby predator and a false echo. 
you raise your bow and notch an arrow. Beautiful girl, beautiful girl, Atalanta, come out of your cave. We won't do you any harm. We have gifts for you. The first centaur calls from the darkness of the trees. His voice is low and rough, like the bark of the plane tree in October. You suspect that it was they who lit the fire to drive you out, to make you panic. He wants you to cry out, to give away your position, but you have hunted bigger game than him before. Atalanta, another deep male voice calls. Come out, little girl. Come out and meet a real man. You keep your breathing soft and even. You do not react. You do not move. You wait until the first one enters the grove. He is enormous. He is human from the torso up and horse from the waist down. His body is covered in hair and muscles. You hold your fire. You need both of them to reveal themselves before you can risk taking your shot. Because you will only get one shot at this prey. When the second one enters the grove, he is carrying a torch. In the light of the fire, you see violence in his face. And you feel a visceral anger. It is one thing for these centaurs to hunt you. It is another for them to defile the forest. To burn and ravage as they go, seeking their prey. But you are not prey. You pull your bow back. This will all be over in two quick shots. You have always been the hunter. I'm Jen McMenemy. And I'm Jenny Williamson. And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the season seven finale. Thank goodness we got here. I can't believe we made it to the end. Oh my God. We started this season in September of last year. We recorded most of the first two months last summer, so around this time last summer, and now we're finally finishing it. It just was this really deep rabbit hole. We thought the season was going to be about one thing. It was turned out to be about something completely different, and I don't know about you, Jen, but I am proud of the work that we did, and I think it was fantastic, but I'm also ready to switch it up a bit, you know? <laughs> I feel the same way, although I'm very much going to miss Greek mythology and gender rebels. I'm also ready to move out of the darkness of the basement of the patriarchy and maybe have a little more lightness next season. I agree. And we've, we've got plans for that. And that announcement will be coming up next week. We'll talk about what our next season is going to be. And this is the last... Our next two seasons, actually. Yeah, we've got two kind of distinct short seasons that'll run into each other. I'm excited about what we're going to do next. And I'm excited about this episode because we've been building to this, Jen. It's Atalanta. It's your favorite. Today, we're going to talk about my hands-down favorite heroine in Greek mythology. She was the gateway first love into mythology for me, our girl, Atalanta. She's one of those epic characters in mythology who I hope to someday write a novel about. We covered Atalanta way back in our Amazon's Warrior Women of Greek Mythology series. I believe it was season two or three. It was a long time ago. It was season two. Yeah. And as much as I ridiculously love mythology, this is a history podcast. So when we covered Atalanta's story in our Amazons episode, really thoroughly, I was pretty sure we wouldn't have another reason to dive into her story again. Like, we covered it. But I'm so freaking happy that I was proved wrong. <laughs> Since our Amazons episodes came out in 2018, Atalanta has continued to stick with me. There's always been something about her story that felt really unfinished to me. Maybe because, like, I didn't get the passion of how much I love the story of Atalanta out then. I don't know. For me, it was as if there was something we hadn't unearthed yet. 
And then we began this Gender Rebels of Greek Mythology series, and I toyed all the time with, does Atalanta fit in? Does she not fit in? Does she fit in? Doesn't she? That was a conversation we had a lot, actually, yeah. We did. Initially, we weren't sure if or how Atalanta fit into this series. Jenny was adamant that she didn't. (laughs) I, I don't think I was adamant that she didn't. I think I wasn't convinced that she did. And the reason is because when I was approaching the Gender Rebels series, what I was really interested in was the construct of gender as the patriarchy was building it at the time and how people just refuse to conform to that in ways that are transgender and non-binary and gender non-conforming. And like, I just, I felt like putting Atalanta in as a gender rebel is kind of like saying tomboys are gender rebels, which on one hand, I could see why people would say that. On the other hand, I guess I felt like, well, you can be a tomboy and cisgender. Like, it's really different from being a trans man, you know, like, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to conflate the two. And I totally agree with that. And from how I viewed Atalanta, Um, You know, I had always viewed her from, as we all know, I grew up very Catholic, from a traditional religious and then also steeped in the classical Athenian patriarchy of this woman who completely goes against everything that she's supposed to do as a woman. She's a huntress. She has sex. She goes on adventures. She doesn't have children. She demands that if anyone's going to marry her, they have to be her equal. Like, these were all things that were very, to me, especially as a young child who grew up quite religious, very transgressive of her gender. I think for me, it felt important initially, and I'm not going to say I still feel this way, but it felt important initially not to call Atalanta a gender rebel, because I didn't feel like any of those things meant you couldn't be a woman. Like, you can be a woman and you can eschew all of these trappings. Your gender is still your gender, even if you don't have kids, even if you hunt. A lot of this has to do with, like, both of us wrestling with gender and what that means to us. And I think there's one factor here to mention is that Jen, I don't think it's it's unreasonable to say, grew up in more of a patriarchal culture than I did. So these might have seemed, this might seem more of a transgression of gender to you than to me initially. Absolutely. I think that's part of the things that for me growing up, I was not a pretty, pretty princess. You know, like I was a little bit of a tomboy. I ran wild. I climbed lots of trees. I just fell in love with Atalanta because it felt like I was seen. And it felt like throughout her story, she gets the ending she wants on her terms. Like if she decides that she wants to join, you know, her father's world, it's on her terms. It's on no one else's terms. And I guess from my point of view, I didn't get to see a lot of women for whom like it wasn't about the happily ever after in these stories. It was about living on your terms. And as I grew older and started to see more about Atalanta stories, like there are definitely queer undertones to her story. And there's a lot of freedom and sexual agency. And for me, that's what really made her a gender rebel. You don't see her keeping sex just in the marriage. As a girl growing up, I always felt a little bit like a like an outsider. And Atalanta sung her song to me and I was like, yes, I can be a girl and all of these other things. And I thought she was such an important story for me. That's why in the end, we wound up covering Artemis, who is the same, and now Atalanta, because I wanted that representation out there for other girls who maybe grew up feeling the same way. The important thing in convincing me that Atalanta belonged in the Gender Rebels series wasn't the tomboyishness and it wasn't the, you know, issuing of various gender roles in general. I think what convinced me with Atalanta was was that her sexuality remained her own in a way that the patriarchy did sand off a lot of other independent female characters. That puts her in the same category to me 
as the queer women episode because queer women are also a group of women whose sexuality is channeled away from home hearth family husband. And I think that's true of Atalanta as well. So yeah, that's that's where we landed with Atalanta. That's why she's in this series. So with all that in mind, let's take a fresh dive into the story of Atalanta. Gender rebel, sexually liberated woman, and maybe, just maybe, a hint of what life would have been like for women outside the traditional gender roles established by the scholars and writers of classical Greece. First, it's important to say that in theory, there could have been two very different Atalantas. Often her story is told as one long tale with all the parts combined to make a relatively compelling and cohesive narrative, and a long one, much longer than most heroines or, let's be honest, any female characters receive in Greek mythology. So we're going to tell this story in sort of its most complete form first, and then we're going to break it down into what might be evidence for the two different Atalantas. One who lived a life of adventures, hunting, fighting, wrestling, loving freely, possibly across genders, and one who also lived a life of adventures while refusing to settle down with anyone who was not her equal. So the, the difference is that one of them has this story about who she does and does not settle down with. Is that right, Jen? Like the foot race is, is in a different story. Yeah, the foot race is in a separate story. So both versions of Atalanta defied Greek gender roles, at least the roles of an upper class aristocrat. And there's a real there's a real class undertone here, too. It's about how gender roles didn't grip so tightly when you're talking about people who, who lived outside of the cities and the quote unquote civilization of the time and who still lived very ancient pre-agrarian lifestyles. And both the versions of Atalanta tell us something about the way women's roles in different areas of ancient Greece might have been perceived, respected, and reviled, depending on your perspective. So let's start at the very beginning. Once upon a time, there was a king who wanted a son. Sometimes this king is referred to as Iasis. Shockingly, this king who really wanted a son had a daughter instead. Furious that he's been stuck with a daughter instead of a son, he orders the child to be exposed or left in the wilderness. Atalanta is left for dead in the wilderness as a tiny baby. But we've told you enough stories by now that you'll get the plot twist. Atalanta does not die in the forest. Oh no, she thrives in them. Artemis, goddess of the wild, of the forest, protector of women and children, goddess of the moon, sends Atalanta some much-needed aid in the form of a bear. Bears were sacred to Artemis, and this bear suckled baby Atalanta, ensuring the child's survival. The theme here of a bear saving Atalanta definitely harkens back to the story of Artemis and Callisto, as well as the ancient connection between bears and motherhood that goes all the way back to the Neolithic and is a core feature of Artemis mythology. Baby Atalanta grows up with her bear cub siblings in just the cutest little pile of baby bears. Atalanta's bear mom looks after her. Her bear siblings teach her how to be curious and brave and fearless. They show her how to live amongst the forests and mountains, how to forage for food, how to understand the wild world and life as part of it, not as a human, but as a bear, not trying to dominate and control the world around her, but as a part of that world. Sometimes she's a predator, and sometimes she's the prey, as are her bear siblings. Atalanta grows up in the forest and among the mountain paths. She's a girl of the trees and the vales and wild spaces. Eventually, in some of the stories, she meets some hunters who help raise and train her. They teach her the skills of archery and how to hunt and track. Now, I've always thought that these hunters had to be male hunters. In artwork, they're usually depicted as being male. But the mythology isn't clear about the gender of these hunters. And based on the research I've been doing, there's a very real probability 
that the hunters who found Atalanta and taught her how to hunt and trap and live in the forest were women. So I wanted to pause our myth for a little bit to take a detour. Way back last September, when we began this series on sex and gender, we looked at women's lives in mostly classical Athens or compared to classical Athenian standards. But Atalanta and the world she inhabited were older and wilder than classical Athens. Atalanta's mythology is as ancient as the stories of other ancient Greek heroes. She appears in Hesiod, which dates from around the 700s BC, roughly, which makes her a contemporary of Theseus, Heracles, Jason, essentially the who's who of Greek heroes. And she exists outside of the codified gender roles of classical Greece. Like these other heroes, Atalanta is older than the classical Athenian gender roles. As classical Athens itself dates to around the 500s to 300s BC, this makes her kind of an echo of an older society, an older world, where women were not constrained by those roles. She's also a character who shows us the difference between what life was like for rural women who lived in, you know, ancient pre-agrarian societies, as opposed to classical Athenian women who lived lives in cities and towns. One clue here is Atalanta's role as a hunter. There's a deeply ingrained idea that men were the hunters and women were the gatherers in pre-agrarian prehistoric societies. But recently, there have been big discoveries in prehistoric archaeology that suggest that between 30 and 50% of women in the ancient world might have been hunters. These studies are based on the remains of a female hunter found in Peru. There has been a reinvestigation of what gender roles looked like for women 10,000 years ago. And I'm paraphrasing an excellent article from Inverse, which we'll link to in the show notes. But essentially, the prevailing assumption was that women stayed at home to raise children 10,000 years ago, leading to men going out and doing the hunting. There's quite a sexist belief that, like, women were were the ones who were able to reproduce, therefore they needed to be kept safe, right? I think that that's a modern preconception. Yeah. However, this recent discovery shows hunting tools in the grave goods of a deceased girl in Peru aged between 17 and 19. And this quote from the Inverse article explains more. Quote, In a study published Thursday in the Journal of Science Advances, a team of archaeologists explain that deeply cemented ideas of gendered roles in ancient societies have held the science back. This is a quote within a quote. A number of scholars have theorized that such division of labor would have been less pronounced, altogether absent, or structurally different among our early hunter-gatherer ancestors. But, Despite such theoretical considerations, some scholars have been reluctant to ascribe hunting functionality to tools associated with female burials. Essentially, the field has largely resisted theories about ancient female hunters in favor of the existing narrative that ancient women stayed home to have or care for children. The archaeologists partially attribute this oversight to contemporary gender bias. However, remains they discovered in Peru in 2013 may offer too great evidence to the contrary for others to ignore. And this actually blew my mind, because I had long believed that women's roles in the ancient world felt forced, or shall we say, constructed. Like, a lot of this has always felt very, very forced to me. Yeah, and it's always, to me, come down through the way we view gender now, as opposed to what it would have looked like then. And here we have archaeology proving this, literally proving it. The article continues to look at the study and explains the methodology used, including examining more graves in that area to make sure this wasn't a fluke finding. And the breakdown was that about 30 to 50% of women 10,000 years ago probably were hunters. 
And granted, this is based on evidence found in Peru, not Greece. But it's reasonable to assume the conditions people were living in back then in rural areas of Greece weren't that different. If your life depends on what food you can catch or gather, those people who have a natural aptitude toward hunting will hunt, regardless of gender. And those with an aptitude toward gathering and helping raise children will take on those roles. Rigid gender roles cost a society something, in that they take talented people out of a role just because of their gender. You're losing people to these gender roles. And you're also losing skills and talent and innovation, you know, by separating the genders like that. Exactly. It makes sense to think that this is a cost that many hunter-gatherer subsistence-level societies couldn't afford. And as with everything we've discussed this season, this just further goes to show that gender was a construct. It was the great work of the classical Athenian scholars, and we're still living with the consequences. Consequences that may have influenced years of study and centuries of study and allowed us to overlook female hunters and warriors in the archaeological record and perpetuate the false narrative handed down to us that said women were only in the home. And if you want more on that, we actually talk about this a lot in our Scythians, Warrior Women of the Ancient World episode too. We, we go into a lot of depth about one ancient society where, where women absolutely did share the same roles with men, including as warriors. Our third Amazons episode also looks at queens and warriors in the ancient world. The reality is that the advent of DNA research and how far we've come in the last... 30 years, maybe 40 years, has really changed how we date and look at remains and the things that we're finding and allows us to conclusively say this was a female. And that has been able to change the way we look at, you know, when we find a grave, we can say this is definitely a female's grave and look at all these tools. The, the science is telling us that she had some kind of martial role. I think the assumption before that was anytime they found tools, hunting tools, or weapons, that it was always sort of a male grave, which, again, is the product of the patriarchy and everything that has come down to us. But now, the science can clearly tell us that is not the case. Yeah. The idea that gender roles are basically destiny, and any grave of a person with weapons or hunting tools is obviously a man, and the idea that women did not, did not ever fulfill those roles in ancient societies, that idea is being quickly eroded by science. We've seen evidence of female warriors and archers and now hunters throughout the world. What this tells us about Atalanta, Artemis, and female hunters in the mythology is that they're a callback to an older and more ancient version of women, a version that had existed throughout the ancient world and that was necessary for survival, and an image of women that was being phased out in the classical gender narrative. If I was very good at hunting with a bow and arrow, my brother was much better at finding the non-poisonous mushrooms and berries our family would be like, she's hunting, you're foraging. That's it. Like, we want to survive. We're not going to debate who's going to do what because of the roles you're supposed to play in, in society. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello everyone, it's here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? 
Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So, let's get back to Atalanta's story. These hunters stumbled upon baby Atalanta and her bear cubs, and they teach her everything they know about hunting in the wilderness, even more than she's already learned from her lovely bear family. The gender of these hunters is gen- is usually unknown in the modern tellings of the story, but it's highly probable that Atalanta met up with female hunters. Indeed, some sources give the identities of these women as comrades of Artemis. Yeah, there's one source that specifically names them as women. We're going to get there. And it's, the, it's one of the oldest ones. So these female hunters who found Atalanta also lived in the wilds of the forest. And they were, in some versions, followers of Artemis. Because as we've covered, the worship of Artemis was a big deal in the rural areas of ancient Greece. Like Atalanta, this version of Artemis, worshipped outside classical Athens by rural people, perhaps represents an older image of the roles of women in subsistence hunter-gatherer societies. Callimachus, in his hymn Three to Artemis, and he was a Greek poet from the 3rd century BC, gives us some more details about the hunters who Artemis sent to look after Atalanta. Quote, Comrades of the goddess Artemis, yea, and Kyrene, thou madest thy comrade, and Prochus, the fair-haired wife of Cephalus, and fair Anticleia, these were the first who wore the gallant bow and arrow-holding quivers on their shoulders, their right shoulders bore the quiver strap, and always the right breast showed bare. Further, thou didst greatly commend swift-footed Atalanta, the slayer of boars, daughter of Arcadian Iosis, and taught her hunting with dogs and good archery. So I wanted to include this because it tells us a lot about Atalanta and female hunters. First, that they existed. How do we know this? Well, we can see it in the stories of Thracian and Scythian women. We can also see it in the way stories about Artemis, one of the oldest goddesses, moved from Egypt to Minoan Crete to Ephesus and finally to the mainland. Artemis was so many things at so many different times. But to the people of the mountains and countryside, she was a protector of children and girls. And her intervention here, by sending these huntresses to Atalanta and teaching her how to live and survive in the wilderness, shows one of the many reasons why she was so sacred to the people of ancient Greece. We talked a lot about the worship of Artemis in our episode about her, so I'm not going to go too much into detail. But the important thing here is that Artemis was worshipped differently in the country, in the forests, and in the wilds than in the cities. Artemis was a deity whose worship transcended class boundaries, and whose worship took on different meanings depending on your social class. You see Artemis getting left out of worship with male kings like Agamemnon and the king of Caledon, much to their detriment. But in the countryside, where women and men had to hunt and work side by side to survive, the worship of Artemis was communal and essential to survival. 
So, when baby Atalanta was ready to leave the safety of her mother bear's den, Artemis sent along some hunters to help continue Atalanta's education. Now, these hunters also gave Atalanta a healthy love for the worship of Artemis. Atalanta became favored by Artemis. Much like Odysseus and Athena, Atalanta and Artemis had a special relationship. Although, in this case, we don't really have any examples of Artemis actually introducing herself to Atalanta. I don't think they ever really interact in the myths. We just know that she watched out for her from afar. As Atalanta grew up, she decided that she wanted to continue living in the wilderness. She wasn't interested in rejoining the world of human beings or going down into the town. Instead, she made a pretty epic home for herself. And this is how Aelian, writing in the 2nd and 3rd century AD, describes Atalanta's home. And it's really worth noting here that Aelian is a much later source, writing from when the gender roles of the patriarchy were very solidly established. Quote, She was committed to virginity, avoided contact with men, and longed for solitude. She established herself in the highest mountains of Arcadia, where there was a well-watered glen with big oak trees, also pines with their deep shadow. At the bottom of the defile was a large and very deep cave. At the entrance protected by a sheer drop, ivy encircled it, the ivy gently twining itself around trees and climbing up them. This very stream served water to the trees already mentioned, with an unfailing current contributing to their vigor. The spot was full of charm and suggested the dwelling of a dignified and chaste maiden. Atalanta slept on the skins of animals caught in the hunt. She lived on their meat and drank water. She wore simple clothes in a style that did not fall short of Artemis's example. She claimed the goddess as her model, both in this and in her wish to remain a virgin. She was very fleet of foot, and no wild animal or man with designs on her could have escaped her. And when she wanted to escape, no one could have caught her. It was not just those who saw her that fell in love with her. By now, her reputation won her lovers. Well, I mean, there's a lot to talk about in that one. Yeah, you think? Alien is a much later source than Callimachus. And in his telling of the myth of Atalanta, he adds some details. Let's call them details. It's just gonna bitch slap you with that patriarchy. First, while Callimachus specifically calls Atalanta a maiden, he doesn't overly focus on her virginity, at least that we saw. But here in the 80s, when classical gender roles are firmly established, Roman rule is firmly established, we have Alien explicitly mentioning Atalanta is a virgin, like the classical version of Artemis, and committed to her virginity. Need to make sure everybody knows in this passage that this girl does not bone. She will not bone. She does not. It's like the most important personality feature about her to him. Sure, because at this point in time, you have the rise in Christianity as well, which is going to change everything for women. Atalanta's virginity is explicitly tied in this passage to her connection to the wilderness. So to understand this connection further, we have to go deeper into Aelian's writings on Atalanta. In Callimachus, active in the 3rd century BC, the hunters who find Atalanta are female. But in Aelian, writing hundreds of years later, he implies that they're male. The way he describes them finding Atalanta is much darker, too. In his telling, the hunters came upon the bear cubs, slaughtered them all, and then tracked the nursing bear and found her with Atalanta. They took custody of Atalanta, which realistically, since bears are such fierce mothers, the only way they could do that was to kill the bear. So they slaughtered Atalanta's entire bear family. This turns the story from one where Atalanta's life with the hunter nymphs is simply a continuation of her wild ways to one about male domination of the forest. And it's easy to see what's happening here. The bear, the darker, older symbol of female wildness, or Artemis, 
has to be destroyed in order to bring Atalanta in line with the gender norms of the 2nd and 3rd century AD. Atalanta has to be quote-unquote rescued from the wild and devote her life to one of virginity and chastity in order to keep from being a threatening female presence to the 2nd and 3rd century AD audience. This is not the case in older versions of her story. So, we've gone through Atalanta's childhood. We discussed how she defied the roles of classical Athenian women and how her roots are based in more ancient gender roles, or perhaps freedom from them. Now we're going to discuss one of the darker myths about Atalanta. And I just want to give everyone a trigger warning here for attempted sexual assault. It's going to be in this myth that we're talking about. Not right away, but it's coming. Atalanta lived on her own in a really beautiful cave, as we've discussed. And she grew into a beautiful woman. I'm rolling my eyes because I hate that description for women. I'm going to let Alien describe her to you so you can see her through this weird male gaze. Quote, While still a young girl, she was bigger than a full-grown woman, and more beautiful than any young woman from the Peloponnesos in those days. She had a fiery, masculine gaze, partially the result of having been nurtured by an animal, but also because of her exercise in the mountains. But since she was full of spirit, there was nothing girlish or delicate about her. She was not the product of the women's apartments, not one of those brought up by her mothers and nurses. Nor was her body overweight, not surprisingly, since she exercised every limb in hunting and physical exercise. Her hair was golden, not due to feminine sophistication, dyes, or applications, but because the color was natural. Exposure to the sun had reddened her face, and it looked as if she was blushing. What flower could be so beautiful as the face of a young woman taught to be modest? She had two astonishing qualities, unrivaled beauty, and with it the capacity to inspire fear. No indolent man would have fallen in love on looking on her, nor would he have had the courage to meet her gaze in the first place. Such radiance with beauty shone over those who saw her. To meet her was remarkable, especially since it happened rarely. No one would have easily spotted her. But unexpectedly and unforeseen, she would appear, chasing a wild beast or fighting against one. Darting like a star, she flashed like lightning. Then she raced away, hidden by a wood or thicket or other mountain vegetation. So let's let's talk about this a little bit. To me, it feels like being behind the eyes of one of these Athenian men who's been raised around women who grew up in these apartments and houses and catching sight of one of these wild women and trying to make sense of her. This is not like a goddess or anything. This is just a a woman who lives in the woods. She's from maybe like a small non-agrarian community and she hunts and fishes and gathers and whatever. And he just catches sight of her and she's so wild and free and he doesn't know what to make of her because she's not living the same life as the women that he knows. There's a lot of fear in this passage as well. There's so much fear in this passage, you know, like, He does not know what to make of her. And in order to make her safe in his mind, she is a virgin who you can hardly ever see. And if you do, it's like seeing like Bigfoot. It's like seeing Bigfoot. Exactly. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh, my God, I've seen Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. It's a rare sighting of this creature that only exists in this one place and therefore can't scare me. Look, everyone knows that Bigfoot is a lot less threatening when you when you think that he's a virgin. (laughs) Also, like, it's a lot less threatening when you think that, like, very few people get to see this Bigfoot unicorn Loch Ness Monster. And therefore, there is really only one. We don't have to worry that there are other women out there. 
living in the woods in the wild with this fierce beauty and ferocity of spirit who don't conform to these gender roles. Or to these very constrained lives that women in these closer agrarian societies were now living. And this man, like, looks at this woman and has this creeping realization that the women around him might actually be just like her. They've just been really constrained. I would say it's not just about constrained, it's about conditioning. These women have been conditioned to accept this gender hierarchy that has been going on for quite a long time now, since classical Athens. But what if they didn't accept it? Again, this is the same fear we have with Maenads and Dionysus, right? I can see the correlation between Dionysus and Artemis here, because they're both calling to this primal part of women and saying, throw off the mantle of the patriarchy-imposed gender roles and get out there and be your true primal self. Yeah, depictions of Maenads are all about fear of women throwing off the patriarchy and These depictions of of Atalanta and even Artemis, this depiction of Atalanta in particular, is about the fear of encountering a woman. And I would say some some Amazon myths are like this as well, like encountering a woman who has never met those gender roles, like those gender roles are just a completely alien concept to them. Yeah. And the only way, the only way that the patriarchy can understand this is that these women are virgins who aren't interested in men because they don't know the goodness of being with a dude. Don't worry, dude. If you can get your hands on her, she'll be immediately tamed. The only reason she hasn't is because she hasn't met you yet. Like, that's how to make her non-threatening. Like, there's so much grossness here. Exactly. She's not been digmatized. It's so gross. So Alien's description is like catching sight of one of these wild women who lived on the margins of, you know, the agrarian society in ancient Greece. Women from communities where older hunter-gatherer subsistence still ruled. Alien specifically compares Atalanta to women who do prescribe to the rigid gender roles he knows. Women who have been constrained and conditioned. The women he's grown up with. Atalanta is, according to Elian, a natural hottie. That's very important to point out. She's not overweight because he has to get the fat shaming in. It's very essential. She's got beautiful golden hair that has not been dyed. It's entirely natural. It's natural. She has absolutely not gotten any kind of plastic surgery, no Botox, no nothing. She's natural. She's perfect in her naturalness. Just reminds me of those guys who are like, you're so beautiful when you don't wear any makeup. And you're like, do you know how much makeup I'm wearing right now to achieve this look? Yeah. But she does conform to gender roles he knows in that Atalanta is modest. He's very careful to point that out. She's chaste, she keeps to herself, and she keeps her beauty hidden from men. (laughs) Kukulin, do you have something you want to say about this? Kukulin has opinions. What are those opinions, Kukulin? That all women should be able to be Atalantas if they want to. After all, Kukulin was trained by a very beautiful, brave warrior woman. (laughs) Way to stick it to the patriarchy. Cullen is weirdly woke. It's weird. <laughs> He's a bisexual ancient Irish hero. <laughs> he knows all about rape culture, apparently. <laughs> he tried to explain to the Morgan about consent. <laughs> anyway, so she's very much a stand-in here for Artemis in this description as she's described as both beautiful and able to inspire fear, but her potency is reduced to a classical audience because her sexual agency is taken away. This Atalanta that's being described is naturally beautiful and wild, just like Artemis, but her beauty and wildness come from a kind of innocence, something much more in line with how the classical Athenians would have viewed a wild girl who lived in the woods. She's innocent and modest, and she's terrifying with a bow and arrow, and she absolutely does not bone. No boning. No boning. None. 
She's not someone to really fear because she's innocent sexually. There's still time for her to grow into a proper woman and lay down her bow and other childish things. She doesn't threaten masculinity that much because there is the potential for her to be quote-unquote dominated sexually by men. Oh my god, I just threw up in my mouth a little bit. No boning. But you can see now why I'm just like, yeah, this is super important to talk about. I'm really ready to get out of the patriarchal basement now. (laughs) So all of that is in the subtext of Alien's description. Because he's writing long after the gender roles of classical Athens have been taken on and adapted and codified across Greece and Rome and spread into the rest of the Western world. And it's all pretty fucking dark. It's also this time period where we get the most detail about Atalanta, where she lived and what she looked like. This passage that we quoted appears just before the story of Atalanta and her centaur neighbors. Centaurs, in Greek mythology, are all kind of jerks, with the exception of Chiron, the hero trainer. Double dong Chiron. Double dong Chiron, the hero trainer. But yeah, centaurs are party animals, literally. Chaotic man horses and total hooligans. So, in this next story, two centaurs discovered that Atalanta was living alone in the forest, and they decided that they were going to assault her. There was an elaborate plan where they light parts of the forest around Atalanta's cave on fire in a ruse to get her to leave her home. But Atalanta is not tricked by the centaurs. She shoots and kills them both without breaking a sweat. No man, no creature, nothing was going to threaten her. And she needed no man to protect her from anything. That fact alone would have caused many men in classical Athens to feel very threatened indeed. Shortly after the centaur incident, Atalanta's fame grew. Slaying two centaurs in two shots was incredibly impressive. Rumors of Atalanta's beauty also circulated because that is the most important thing about any woman. Is she fuckable? Exactly. Has she passed her boning sell-by date? I know. And people were buzzing with stories about the seldom-seen Huntress. It's around this time that a certain boar was making trouble for the people in Caledon. So the Caledonian boar wasn't your average boar. It was huge and monstrous with an almost impenetrable hide, epic tusks, and it breathed fire. It was kind of like a boar dragon. It was also a punishment from the goddess Artemis. Artemis sent the boar to ravage Caledon because the king of Caledon forgot to worship her during their annual harvest festival, and she was petty like that. So, the Caledonian boar was a form of divine punishment for not honoring the goddess Artemis. One does not simply forget to worship Artemis. Forgetting to worship Artemis and getting her divine wrath was something that you see repeated over and over in mythology. Look, if you forget to worship Artemis, you're going to get some wrath in the face. It's just what you're going to get. You see it in the myth of Iphigenia at Aulis, which we talked about in our Achilles series. Artemis does not take kindly to those who forget her. Is it petty or is she just like, I don't know that I'd call it petty because what you see here is two kings who in particular are leaving out a goddess and it's almost like they're putting themselves above her, particularly in the case of Agamemnon. He's like, I'm a better hunter than Artemis. I don't know if that's exactly what the king of Caledon did, but... To me, I'm like, is this about an older, ancient female goddess reminding men that, like, everything is still flows down from me? I mean, it is petty, because it is going to hurt other people, not just this king, but, you know. It's some petty shit in my mind, like, just like, oh, I'm, I'm punishing you because you did not worship me. It's like, why do you need to be worshipped so bad? Like, why do we need to praise God all the time? What does God need, for, need our praise for? Like, 
this is a bigger conversation, but. It's really interesting. And I guess the important thing is like, you see Dionysus getting mad at people not worshiping him. And we know that he's a gender rebel. You see, you know, Artemis getting mad and we know she's a gender rebel. But we don't see people like Zeus getting mad about not being worshipped. No one tends to forget him. They don't forget Demeter. They don't forget people who are pretty firmly in their roles and boxes. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Like as as power imbalances change amongst the gods, I think this is like it also speaks to like dynamics among people, which is what it is. Mm -hmm. Or whose power has been eroded and changed by the growing patriarchy, moving from a religions that really put them at the top of the of the food pyramid and now they're being moved down so someone else can go to the top and the idea that you could take a very old powerful goddess like artemis or dionysus and deny them their tribute that was gonna spark some rage and you know we talked about in our artemis episode the idea that artemis becomes the shadow to her brother who becomes the ascendancy as the sun and she starts kind of going down a little bit in esteem you can see that that is part of the patriarchy at play yeah so, the Caledonian boar is ravaging the kingdom of Caledon. Meleager, the son of the king, calls together all the greatest hunters and heroes to kill this boar. There was Theseus, Meleager, Castor and Polydeuces, brothers of Helen of Troy, Jason, ugh, Peleus, Achilles' dad, and many more. These are all dudes. The great male heroes of the age had arrived to sort out this problem that was brought on by failing to worship an ancient goddess of the wild. And according to the story, Artemis herself sent one hero to slay the boar, Atalanta. Which makes sense. In this story, Atalanta is very much a stand-in for Artemis. And probably she sends her because everyone's praying to Artemis like, I'm so sorry, Artemis. Like, we're not, we're not our king. Please help us. We're women and children. <laughs> you know? Aren't you meant to protect us? <laughs> Atalanta arrives on the scene and there is some real, to quote our friends at Queen's, fragile dick energy going on. Many of the men refused to allow Atalanta to participate because she was a girl. But Meliager took one look at Atalanta and fell in lust with her. And I'm going to read you um, a quote from Ovid, who was writing in the 1st century BC and the 1st century AD. So he's a much later source, but he's a really complete source, and Ovid gives us some beautiful language, which is always worth quoting. This quote here tells us something about how Atalanta's beauty and appearance changes. Quote, her face appeared as maidenly for boy, or boyish for girl. So she appears as an androgynous person. Or she appears as maybe the Ganymede sort of ideal. We're getting into poor delicatus territory. Exactly. So this description that we're seeing here is very different from the one we see in Alien. And is really reminiscent to me of the poor delicatus that we discussed earlier in the season. It also shows how Atalanta is changed to fit the most beautiful or desirable image of the time, which we know at this point in time, would have involved pederasty. Ugh. So around this time, the story of Atalanta swearing to be an eternal virgin comes up. Now, as far as I can tell, there is no early evidence for this in the mythology, but this is a myth, and that means that one interpretation can change from story to story and place to place, depending on the tellers and the culture at the time. And I think that's really important. Myths are living, breathing things that evolve. There is a myth that Atalanta was told by the Oracle at a very young age that if she ever lost her virginity, then bad shit would happen, essentially. I do feel like, I know I, I said this in the, in the Amazons episode too, like we were all told that. 
in sex ed. We were all told this in sex ed and like for some of us that that message really got down in there deep and we were like, okay, I never want to ever do that because no, no, babies, no, STDs, no. STDs, pregnancy, fucking horrific, none of it. Yeah, as we all get that message. Our sex ed in the 90s, right, there was also the fear of like AIDS in a way that it is still a fear now, but not the same. And STDs that like we heard about, we saw, we saw very, gra- in my STD class, health class, we saw very graphic images of what those things look like to really scare us off that sex. And then I don't know about anyone else, but I remember having to watch a video on a woman giving birth and it was traumatic, hugely traumatic. I just remember the baby had a lot of hair and it just came right out there. And I was just like, oh, no, this is not I'm never doing this. And now abortion is no longer a right and women are not people. Welcome to the 21st century, everybody. We have gone right back to the to the dream world of the classical Athenians. Oh, abortion. Abortion was allowed in classical Athens. Like, just ask a princess. Uh, it was only allowed if your husband said it was allowed. It was not allowed if you wanted to have it without your husband's permission. How your husband knew you were having an abortion probably didn't. Anyway. Anyway, this myth about Atalanta's virginity is important because this addition to Atalanta's sexual agency and her ability to have sexual agency causing bad things to happen is all about placing blame on Atalanta for taking lovers and experiencing sex and sexual pleasure outside of marriage. It's a way for mythmakers and storytellers to ingrain in women the fear of what happens when they seek their own desires outside of the marriage bed. So Atalanta rocks up at the Caledonian boar hunt and everyone's like, whoa, she's very fuckable. She's so fuckable. How have we not known there was this super fuckable girl who, according to Avin, might be androgynous or look like a young boy. But we like young boys, right? Cool. She's fuckable. She lives in the woods. And we absolutely cannot have her take part in this hunt because she might cause strife among the men who all want to bang her. Nobody asks if she wants to bang any of these losers. No. It's just assumed. <laughs> Nobody asked for Atalanta's consent here. Right. It's just assumed that she will and that the men will fight about it. But Meliager insists that this girl, who he also definitely wants to bang, take part in the hunt. She looks like Artemis, for fuck's sake. She has to have been sent from the goddess herself. Look how fuckable she is. To not let her take part would be another affront to the goddess. Reluctantly, the men agree to let Atalanta hunt the boar. And privately, depending on the version, Meliager and Atalanta start hooking up because maybe Atalanta's down for some casual fun. I don't know. She looked at Meliager and she's like, you know, you're fuckable. So maybe that's why things turn out the way they do for Meliager, and we'll get to that. But that is placing the blame in this story, all on Atalanta having sex, which infuriates me. Well, you know, it's all women's fault for having sex outside of home, hearth, and family. Ladies, lock those organs up unless you're going to do it in the marriage bed. No boning. None. Ovid, a later Roman source, tells us the story of the hunt. Quote, An Atalanta, virgin of the groves, of Mount Lycaeus, glory of her sex, a polished buckle fastened her attire, her lustrous hair was fashioned in a knot, her weapons rattled in an ivory case swung from her white left shoulder, and she held a bow in her left hand. Her face appeared as maidenly for boy or boyish for girl. When Meliager saw her, he at once longed for her beauty, though some god forbade. The fires of love flamed in him, and he said, Happy the husband who shall win this girl. Neither the time nor his own modesty permitted him to say another word. 
But now the dreadful contest with the boar engaged this hero's energy and thought. A wood, umbrageous, not impaired with age, slopes from a plain and shadows the wide fields, and there this band of valiant heroes went, eager to slay the dreaded enemy. Some spread the nets and some let loose the dogs, some traced the wide spore of the monster's hooves. There is a deep gorge where the rivulets that gather from the rain discharge themselves, and there the bending willow, the smooth sedge, the marsh rush, osier and tall tangled reed in wild profusion cover up the marsh. Aroused from this retreat, the startled boar, as quick as lightning from the clashing clouds, crashed all the trees that cumbered his mad way. The young men raised a shout, leveled their spears, and brandished their keen weapons. But the boar rushed onward through the yelping dogs and scattered them with deadly sidelong stroke. The virgin Atalanta took her bow and, fitting a sharp arrow to the notch, twanged the tight cord. The feathered shaft quivered beneath the monster's ear. The red blood stained his hard bristles. Flushed with her success, rejoiced the maid, but not more gladly than the hero Meliager. He it was who first observed the blood and pointed out the stain to his companions as he cried, Give honor to the courage of a maid! Unwilling to be worsted by a maid, the rushing heroes raised a mighty cry, and as they shouted in excitement, hurled their weapons in confusion, and so great the multitude their actions interfered. So... Let's let's discuss what happened here. Atalanta is the first to wound the boar. Meliager is so smitten to see her draw first blood. He's also the only one who's happy that Atalanta has achieved this feat. What happens next is an epic clusterfuck. The heroes old charge after the boar and some are killed. This scene becomes all about their fragile dick energy, with some man needing to be the one who deals the death blow. The boar is killed, but not before quite a few lesser heroes are also killed. Meliager, recognizing that Atalanta is the badass who drew first blood, gives her the hide. This once again erupts in a huge fight where Meliager kills his uncles. Meliager's mother is so angry at him that she throws a piece of wood into the fireplace, and this magical wood is somehow linked to Meliager's life. And, as the wood burns, Meliager dies. It's all her fault, clearly. If only that woman hadn't walked into that grove and into that fight. And then, Jenny, like, if she hadn't boned Meliager, he wouldn't be dead. Yeah, if she hadn't drawn first blood, if only she just let the guys kill the boar, you know? Like, it's all her fault for being good at things and having sex. It's not their fault for behaving like utter assholes. So I included all this detail because there's a school of thought that Atalanta is also a form of punishment sent from the goddess Artemis. In addition to the Caledonian boar, Atalanta arrives to join the hunt, and she causes discontent. She causes the death of many fragile male heroes. And finally, she causes the death of her lover Meliager, the son of the king who dishonored Artemis. Viewed this way, this is a really dark story the story of a goddess, Standin, who uses her beauty and her skills to best and destroy godless men. Is that something Artemis would do? Absolutely. Is that something Atalanta would do? Possibly? It's tough to know. Is Atalanta here a pawn of her patron goddess, or is she a willing servant of her goddess's plans? After the Caledonian boar hunt, the next time we see Atalanta is at the funeral games of Peleus. At these games, Atalanta wrestles Peleus, different guy, Achilles' dad, who is famous for one thing. Literally one thing. Maybe two things. 
wrestling women to the ground, and that's how he <laughs> managed to win Thetis's hand in marriage. Atalanta wrestles and defeats Peleus, and in, the interesting thing here is about the wrestling. So wrestling was a very male sport in ancient classical Athens. I mean, obviously, it's usually done naked or in a loincloth. It's very sexually aggressive. Lots of dominating and flipping and pinning of someone on their backs, and everyone gets really oiled and sweaty and naked. And when you look at it this way, Atalanta dominating Peleus this way is kind of subversive. It's like when Amphale dominated Heracles. Women aren't supposed to be able to best men in wrestling or in sex. We're not supposed to be on top. Uh-uh. No, and that's exactly what happened here. Atalanta is then one of the heroes who goes on the quest for the Golden Fleece. Although the timeline here is fuzzy, so she might have done this before the wrestling of Peleus, or after, we're not sure. The Argonauts, or Jason's crew, as he sets out to steal the Golden Fleece, were a who's who of ancient Greek heroes. They included Heracles, Peleus, Theseus, Orpheus, and the list goes on and on. Atalanta was the only female Argonaut. In some stories, even though Jason and Atalanta were on friendly terms, she gave him an epic spear, for example, he doesn't allow her to participate in the quest for the Golden Fleece. His reasoning is straight-up toxic masculinity, and it's all—it's basically the same reason as the whole Caledonian boar fiasco. Jason is scared that all the men will do stupid shit out of their love for Atalanta because she's really fuckable, and they're going to want to bone her, and nobody ever stops to wonder if she wants to bone any of them. It's just not even a question what she wants. They're all going to fight over her. Instead of realizing that Atalanta can beat any of these men in a fight and will only take a lover if she feels like it, he makes the call not to allow her to participate in the quest in general, kind of like something Mike Pence would do. I don't know. Thankfully, there are other myths that are not shitty, as shitty at least, that include Atalanta in the quest. So she goes with the Argonauts on their journey, stops at Lemnos, presumably has a fun time with the women there because she does not remain on the ship. Only Heracles and his boyfriend do. Atalanta definitely hangs out and maybe we can read between the lines, possibly takes a lover with the women of the island. Atalanta is next mentioned as having been wounded at the Battle of Colchis and healed by Medea. So it's safe to say that she had an epic time serving as an Argonaut, defying gender roles, maybe in our fanfiction taking female lovers, and in general being a boss. A boss who, let's be honest, Jason would not have been able to survive without. And that ends the story of the Arcadian Atalanta. But wait, what about that epic foot race? So the Arcadian Atalanta, that's like a little bit Athenian associated, right? I would say Arcadian might even be slightly more Spartan-esque. I'm not sure. And the other one is the Boeotian Atalanta. And this is this other branch of the story. That's the Theban version. And remember, like, the Thebans were more agrarian and kind of seen as, like, country bumpkin type people to the Athenians at the time. We talked about this in our Sacred Band of Thebes episodes. But Atalanta is the most beautiful girl in the Peloponnese. I don't know. It's all mixed around. Anyway. What about that epic foot race? That's the thing she's most famous for, right? Well, that foot race, which is often tacked onto the story, is probably not related to the Arcadian version of Atalanta. It's probably related to the Boeotian or Theban Atalanta, because it's very likely that the story of Atalanta developed over two regions and then was sort of smushed together to make one long epic. But the story of the Boeotian Atalanta, the girl who refused to marry any man who was not her equal, is potentially the story of a different woman entirely. The story of the Boeotian Atalanta goes like this. Once there was a girl who was unwanted by her father, who was a king, so he had her left in the woods to be exposed. Artemis sent a bear to suckle this baby. 
Atalanta grows up in the woods, and eventually her dad, that king who definitely didn't want a baby girl, finds out she's alive, and that she's beautiful and a very skilled hunter. And he decides, hey, I've had no luck fathering other kids, so I might as well acknowledge this one, who is so skilled and my only chance at leaving behind a dynasty. Atalanta agrees to be accepted as his daughter, but will only marry a man who is her equal. Her name literally means of equal weight, meaning of equal status to any man. She tells her father that she will only marry a man who can best her in a foot race. So I want to stop here for a minute because the foot race is worth exploring. It's yet another clue to Atalanta's connection to rural women and a more ancient pre-agrarian tradition outside of classical gender roles. Foot races were extremely common in the ancient world, particularly amongst girls. Unmarried Spartan girls practiced sports in gyms and ran foot races. They boxed, wrestled, and took part in all the same sports as boys. They probably did many of these activities naked, maybe? I'm not 100% sure, but possible. Unmarried Spartan girls took part in public foot races in short chitons and were called thigh flashers, because while running these races, they flashed their thighs. Scandal! And of course, the men watching were only looking at thighs. They're just like, oh, who's fuckable? Thighs! Assholes. <laughs> I love their shapely thighs. Unmarried women and girls were allowed to compete in the ancient Herean games that were held at the Temple of Zeus in Olympia. Women would wear a cheton that stopped around the knees and tied at one shoulder. This loose garment allowed them to run, race chariots, and do all the things their male counterparts could do. Women who won these events were allowed to have a statue or portrait to Hera and could inscribe their names on the columns of Hera's temple. This might be one of the ways that the ancient foot race of Atalanta was connected to marriage. Hera is the goddess of women and of marriage. By competing in these events and winning, girls go from being under the realm and protection of the goddess Artemis to the protection of Hera. But the most direct way that foot races were connected to marriage comes from the island of Crete. The ancient Minoans actually had a very interesting race that seems to mirror Atalanta's. In her article, Facts and Myths about Atalanta, the goddess of running, Tracy Regula tells us, quote, Atalanta may be Minoan in origin. The first women's sacred foot races are believed to have been held in ancient Crete. The golden apples may have been bright yellow quince fruit, which still grows on Crete and was a very important fruit in ancient times, before the arrival of citrus and other fruits from the east. The Atalanta story may reflect an older tradition of athletic, empowered, free women on Crete choosing their own husbands and lovers. The earliest version of the Olympic Games was believed to have come from Crete and may have been made up of all women athletes competing in honor of the ancient Minoan mother goddess. If this is the case, then Atalanta, much like Artemis, is a much older character. A woman with agency who has been carried down through the ages, her story sanded down so that her sexual and personal agency are tied to men, and the consequences of Atalanta being an independent woman are linked to tragedy. Atalanta is described as fleet of foot. She's an incredibly fast runner. She knows that she won't lose a foot race, and any man who decides to take her up on this challenge is going to lose and be humiliated. Which, let's be honest, is kind of part of the fun. Yeah! That's what she is here for, right? Like, she is here for their humiliation, and I love it. Anyway, loads of men come and compete for the honor of marrying Atalanta. All of them lose, until a guy named Hippomenes turns up. Hippomenes also fell in love with Atalanta at first sight. He's so smitten that he prays to the goddess Aphrodite for help. It's unclear why Aphrodite helps him, but she does. 
Aphrodite gives Hippomenes three golden apples. She tells him to throw them down when it looks like Atalanta is getting a little bit ahead. Atalanta will have to stop for the apples and he'll be able to beat her. Hippomenes thanks Aphrodite and makes a lot of big promises about how many huge sacrifices he's going to make after he wins the race and wins Atalanta's hand. Things go down pretty much the way you'd think. Atalanta starts winning the race. Hippomenes throws down an apple. We've talked about these golden apples before and how they probably were like full of all the things that you desired most in the world. Or maybe they're quince fruits. These are definitely the apples of the Hesperides, which are in mythology in other stories. Anyway, and Atalanta has to stop every time to pick this beautiful fruit up. This blatant cheating is the only way that Hippomenes could have bested Atalanta. And it works. Atalanta doesn't seem too upset by Hippomenes' victory. Maybe because she knows that deep down she won that race, but has to admire Hippomenes' need for divine intervention to marry her. Maybe she's just like, look at these beautiful golden apples that are all mine. Maybe she actually likes him. I don't know. Yeah. I always believe, I remember in my college poetry class, writing a poem about Atalanta, and maybe, maybe she let him win. We're not told how Atalanta actually felt, but we do have clues here. And some of those clues are that Atalanta is bisexual. That's pretty fan fiction-y, you know, but there are slight, slight, slight clues. Yes, she has been raised amongst Artemis's hunters, her nymphs. She's had a good time on the island of Lemnos, presumably taking female lovers. And she's also, at this point in time, had at least one male lover, Meliager. Atalanta presumably has had a good look at Hippomenes and said, I'm hitting that. That's fuckable. He's fuckable. You know. Hippomenes and Atalanta are married and they are very much in lust. Lust. Unholy lust. <laughs> they cannot keep their hands off each other. They do it everywhere. They're like Julius Caesar and Cleopatra in the Alexandrian palace with the mob just outside. You don't want to sit anywhere. All of the services are sticky. The bath. If you visit Arcadia or Boeotia in Greece, then anywhere, basically anywhere you're standing, they probably did it right there. They're insatiable. They cannot get enough of each other. Time rolls on. Hippomenes totally forgets the promise he made to sacrifice to Aphrodite as thanks for her help in cheating and winning the foot race through cheating. Hippomenes and Atalanta are just fucking around, literally, all throughout the countryside. They come to an ancient temple and are immediately struck down with insatiable lust, as you do when you are confronted with a temple. Like, they have no control over themselves. They have to bone right now, and they do. Oh, they do. Yeah, it's bone right now or die. God, that sounds urgent. It sounds so urgent and pressing, right? Yes. <laughs> this is what Ovid tells us in his Metamorphosis. Quote, Did I, Aphrodite, not deserve his thanks with tribute of sweet incense? But he, Hippomenes, was ungrateful and forgetful of my help. He gave me neither frankincense nor thanks. Such conduct threw me into sudden wrath. And fretting at the sight, I felt I must not be despised at any future time. I told myself t'was only right to make a just example of them. They were near a temple, hidden in the forest, which glorious Echion, in remembered time, had built to Rhea, mother of the gods, in payment of a vow. So wearied from the distance traveled, they were glad to have a needed rest. Hippomenes, while there, was seized with love his heart could not control, a passion caused by my divinity. Quite near the temple was a cave-like place, covered with pumice. It was hallowed by religious veneration of the past. 
Within the shadows of that place, a priest had stationed many wooden images of olden gods. The lovers entered there and desecrated it. The images were scandalized and turned their eyes away. The tower-crowned mother, Sybil, at first prepared to plunge the guilty pair beneath the waves of sticks. But such a punishment seemed light, and so their necks that had been smooth were covered instantly with tawny manes, their fingers bent to claws, their arms were changed to forelegs, and their bosoms held their weight, and with their tails they swept the sandy ground. Their casual glance is anger, and instead of words they utter growls. They haunt the woods, a bridal room to their ferocious taste. And now fierce lions that they are terrible to all of life, except to Sybil, whose harness has subdued their champing jaws. So basically what happens here is that Atalanta and Hippomenes are struck with lust by Aphrodite because she's mad at Hippomenes for not properly thanking her. So as revenge for this, Aphrodite strikes them both with unsatiable lust and they wind up getting it on in a temple. And then Sybil, the goddess Sybil, we all know about her from um, our work on transgender women. Her priestesses were trans. Anyway, Sybil gets mad at them and curses them, turns them into lions for boning in the temple. That's what happens. So they basically just turn into PDA lions. Yeah, they're just lions who fuck a lot across the countryside and are really fierce and immortal. Right. So this punishment was meant to be really dire to the ancient Greeks because for some weird reason, the ancient Greeks believed that lions did not mate with each other. There was this belief that lions could only have sex with other big cats like panthers. It's weird. So to be turned into a lion with your lover meant that you could never again have sex with your lover, which would be a fitting punishment for two people who profaned a temple through their profligate boning. Yeah. It's also about punishing a woman who had sexual agency. Atalanta is such a subversive character that her agency, her desire, and now her sexuality cannot be contained, not even in marriage. I mean, they go really quickly from she shall not bone, she shall never bone to like she just fucks in the temple. She fucks wherever she wants. The only way to contain her is by transforming her into a lion, a wild creature that can forever hunt and roam and be one with the forest in nature, a creature who can never again profane the gods with her sexual agency because to keep that sexual agency, she can't even be human anymore. She has to be an animal. Like, that's that's how dark the patriarchy is taking it. Except that's not really how it all worked out because lions can and do procreate with each other. And Atalanta and Hippomenes got to live their best immortal lives fighting, fucking, and hunting as lions. PDA lions! PDA lions forever! It's not the huge punishment that the ancient Greeks would have perceived it to be. In fact, as the noose of gender roles began tightening throughout the ages and the patriarchy started to rise, forcing women into smaller and smaller boxes, into roles that didn't feel right, Maybe Atalanta got the best fate of all, to be wild and free, able to fuck and hunt, and be with the one you loved, forever. It doesn't sound half bad to me, Jenny. So that's it for this season. We are done, and we are going to take a break. We will be back on September 22nd. And join us next week when we reveal what the new season's gonna gonna entail. You can still find us on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl and on Twitter at Ancient History Fan. And while we're on hiatus, we're going to be dropping some of our favorite episodes with brand new introductions. 
And if you would like to join our Patreon, we will be dropping new content throughout the summer. It is at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. We will be dropping new episodes, videos, fun things, interviews that we've done just for Patreon subscribers. So check it out. You can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Yeah, and Jenny, we also have a five-star review to shout out. Do you want to read it for us? Uh, sure. I will read the review. Facts and Feminists. Jen and Jenny are wonderful narrators for the most candid retellings of ancient history, from Julius Caesar to Alaric of the Visigoths, the outrageous personalities of these historical figures are brought to life. This podcast is filled with facts, feminism, wizards, little boots, and Prosecco feud bacchanals. You will be enraptured within the first five minutes of any episode. Start with Lucusta the Poisoner. Yay! Thank you so much for your kind words. It's actually a perfect description of our podcast. Pretty much, yeah. Lucusta the Poisoner is a really good place to start. <laughs> right. That's it for this week. We will see you next week.